turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. And today we will be in John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. This is God's word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, help us now to be very mindful of your word. Help us to uh, have a right attentiveness and discipline to uh, see what your word is speaking to us right now. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to do this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Uh, someone once said to me and they got it from someone else that Christian ministry is often about doing or attempting to do a lot with very little resources. It's about uh, doing a lot with very little resources. Now, the reason why he said this is actually based off this passage where we see probably the best demonstration of someone doing a lot, that's an understatement, doing a huge amount with very minimal resources. That's what we see in this passage. Jesus has complete ability to provide abundantly in impossible circumstances. With the most minimal of resources, he has complete ability to provide abundantly. Let's get the context here. We're now in chapter 6. So Jesus, through chapter 5, has been in Jerusalem in his interaction with the Jewish leaders. And now he is back up north in Galilee. The Passover is at hand, we read here in verse 4. 
Now, this is the second of three Passovers that John, the gospel writer, records. The first one we remember back in chapter two, and now we have the second Passover. And this is all building up to the third and final Passover where Jesus will celebrate the Passover with his disciples. At the very same time, he becomes the Passover lamb slain for the sins of the world. Now, we know from this account, interestingly, this is the one account that is mentioned in all four Gospels. It's mentioned in all of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's also mentioned here. This is the only account that is mentioned in all four Gospels. And we know from the other Gospel accounts that at this point, Jesus and his disciples are really looking for rest. They're at a busy ministry tour, so to speak, and they're looking for rest. In the other Gospel accounts, Jesus is actually saying to the disciples, go off and get some rest. But there are masses of people that continue to follow Jesus. So from the number that we read here in verse 10, where Jesus says, have the people sit down. And then we read, uh, there was much grass in the place so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. It's likely that this is uh, about 15,000 upwards, certainly more than 10,000 people. It was natural to simply count the men of the time. I think there's also other reasons. But if there, presumably, there would be women and children there as well. So this is uh, somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people here, all flocking to Jesus. So just get the picture here. This is the situation. Jesus sees this large crowd of approximately 15,000 people coming to him. He's tired. The disciples are tired. But Jesus knows they need food. And so with great compassion, he desires to feed these thousands of people. And so we read from verse 5, Jesus asks Philip, Philip, who was from Bethsaida, you might remember a town very nearby. So Jesus turns to Philip and says, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And Philip naturally is filled with incredulity, just thinking, why, what, what kind of question is this? There is no way even 200 denarii worth of bread could not give these people enough. It might give them a little bit. Now, 200 denarii is like almost an annual salary of the day. One denarii was a day's uh, labor. So it's at least 75% of um, an annual salary. So to put this in today's currency, you would need 50 to $70,000 to feed these people. It's a huge amount of money. And so Philip rightly says, this is impossible. If we had $70,000 worth, they would get a few crumbs. There would still be hungry people, likely. And then the situation doesn't really improve because then later on, Andrew finds this young boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, the loaves of bread aren't like your standard Baker's Delight loaves. They look probably more like pancakes, little thin things. They would be more appetizers. So they're not, there's not a huge amount of bread. I mean, this is maybe enough for a small family or something like that. This wouldn't feed a congregation of us of like 25 people here. This would not be enough to feed us, let alone if we had 15,000 more people here. So the situation is impossible by natural standards. It's impossible to feed this amount of people with the amount of resources that they have. And this sets the, th the, the scene for the main theme of this passage, which is Jesus has complete ability to provide abundantly in impossible circumstances. 
Jesus has complete ability to provide abundantly in impossible circumstances. So let's firstly look at the manner in which Jesus provides, the manner in which he provides abundantly in the impossible circumstances. Then let's look at the deeper meaning of the passage and then let's draw some comforting conclusions for us in light of God's abundant provision in our circumstances. So we've got the scene here from verses 11 to 13. We see the abundant provision in impossible circumstances. So Jesus takes the loaves and the fish He gives thanks and he distributes them. Now, just take a moment to see the picture. See this picture of Jesus taking the five little loaves of bread and the two fish and giving thanks before thousands and thousands of people. It would be like me taking one of these little loaves. We're about to have lunch as a congregation. I take this little crumb here and I'm joyful in my face saying, thank you, Lord, for this abundant provision that is going to feed all of us richly. It's absurd. If anyone was to look in, it would be absurd. How can a little tiny bit of bread feed all of us? It's impossible. This is the picture. And this, the picture of absurdly minimal resources is precisely what makes us see the abundance. The picture of absurdly minimal resources is precisely what makes us see the abundance of the provision. Because anyone with sufficient worldly resources could make this happen. People, there would be people in the world who would probably quite often spend $50,000 feeding thousands of people. Granted, not the majority of people in the world, but there would be a handful of people who have sufficient worldly resources who could feed 15,000 people. You just spend your 50 to 100 grand on catering and you can feed them. But there's nothing miraculous about that. This is like someone who has $20 to their name. Their fridge is empty. Their cupboards have like a pack of potatoes in there and 15,000 people come and somehow they are able to provide enough for these people. The abundance is seen in the fact that there is such little worldly resources. And part of the lesson here, of course, is that a little in the hands of Jesus is more than enough. A little in the hands of Jesus is always more than enough. So Jesus here is is displaying his complete ability to provide abundantly in impossible circumstances. And look at the abundance. Look in verses 11 and 13. Look at the abundance that we see here. Jesus takes the loaves, he distributes them, and they have as much as they wanted. It's not like Jesus is rationing the portions. I mean, they, they, it's, it's as if they're coming back for seconds and thirds. They have as much as they wanted. He's not rationing at all. And then in verse 12, we read, when they had eaten their fill, literally when they were full, their stomachs were full. When they had eaten their fill, then after that, verse 13 is the amazing thing. They gather up the remainder and they have 12 baskets full of leftovers. That's the crazy thing. Jesus takes this absurdly minimal amount of resources. He feeds thousands of thousands of people. They're full and satisfied. And then he winds up with more than he had at the beginning. That's incredible. They have ended up with more resources 
than they had after feeding thousands and thousands of people with the minimal resources. This is abundant provision. Now, this is the clear theme of this passage, but I believe there is a greater meaning to this that will become clearer as we work our way through chapter 6. Jesus has a bit of a discourse with the people later on through chapter 6 that we will get to in a few weeks, which is where he elaborates on this. And he says that famous, one of the famous I am statements where he says, I am the bread of life. So there's, of course, a deeper meaning to this rather than simply Jesus having an ability to provide. One of the main themes that will become clear is that not only does Jesus demonstrate he is a provider, but Jesus demonstrates that he is the provision. He is the provision. He is the bread of life. So Jesus will go on to say to the people who come to him afterwards, do not work for food that perishes. Do not come to me as though I'm some a cosmic master chef that can provide for you. Do not come and work for food that perishes. Rather, realize that I am the bread of life. In me is nourishment. I am the gift from God, just like the manna rained down from heaven. I am the one from heaven given to you. I am the bread of life. So it's one thing for Jesus to offer bread. It's one thing for him to offer bread It is quite another for him to become bread. Just like it is one thing for God to offer salvation, it is quite another thing for God to become salvation. That's quite another step. For example, let's say in a year or two, Eliora is starting school and Eliora gets scared. And you've all seen the way uh, she gets scared, even from uh, some of Ben's hellos freaks her out. So it's quite normal to, to, to think of Eliora, quite conceivable to think of her getting scared. Let's say that she is trying to, um, uh, just because I think she's competent as a five-year-old, I say, Eliora, you can head off to school on your own. And she says, well, I'm scared because there's going to be older kids there. I'm scared because... Uh, I don't think I'll, I'll be able to find my way to school or find my way back home. Now, at that point, I could provide for her. I could provide her with resources to be safe. I could train her in self-defense very quickly in just a, a quick, intensive week course. I could train her in self-defense. I could give her a, a very uh, intelligible and understandable GPS system, and I could track it all, and I could make sure that she's going to where she needs to be. I could offer her these resources. And that's something that I could do. But it's quite another thing for me to say, you know what, Eliora, I'm going to walk with you to school the whole way. I'm going to lead you all the way to the classroom door and I'm going to wait outside there until it's home time. I'm going to walk with you back. In that sense, I'm not offering her resources. I'm actually becoming her safety. I'm not offering her resources to be safe. I'm actually becoming her safety. I'm with her. That's quite another thing. This is what God has done in Jesus Christ. He doesn't just offer salvation and say, hey, if you follow these steps to come to me, uh, you'll make it. Actually, he condescends in Jesus and becomes the source of salvation in Jesus Christ. He becomes our provision. He doesn't remain distant, simply giving out some advice. He actually becomes the source of eternal salvation by entering fully into the depths of human flesh. And this is highlighted even more by the fact that this occurs at Passover time. 
Remember, John says here, this is a Passover time, the second of three Passovers. And in this passage, John doesn't really elaborate on the fact that it's Passover time. It's just almost a passing comment. But it is necessary to maintain this ongoing theme through John that, as I said earlier, is building up to the moment where Jesus will celebrate the very last Passover, where he will become the Passover lamb, where he will fulfill the uh, many, many times that the Israelites had celebrated the Passover and he himself will become the Passover lamb given to avert the wrath of God so that his blood covers us and he is slain for the sins of the world. And just as Jesus becomes the Passover lamb to shelter people from God's wrath, so he becomes the bread from heaven to nourish God's people. He's actually becoming bread, which is why he will go on to say, I am the bread of life. And this is perhaps some of the symbolism of the fact that they have 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, commentators have a field day with working out what this is pointing to. But I do believe there is some symbolism in the fact that John specifically records that they have 12 baskets of leftovers, given that 12 is such a common theme within Scripture. It could be 12 is in the 12 tribes of Israel. It could be the 12 apostles and their ministry. But either way, I think it's quite clear that the leftovers of 12 baskets is a picture of the ongoing provision for God's people. Not only does he provide in that moment, but it is a picture of the ongoing provision for God's people in potentially both the 12 tribes of Israel as the culmination of God's people, and then also the 12 apostles that begin the new ministry of God's people. We see this, I think, in the Great Commission, just as we see in the Great Commission, the ongoing provision of Jesus to his apostles, where he says, go into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always. He doesn't just say, go do this, and I'll check back with you in a few thousand years. I'm with you always. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He is their provision. He is their safety. He is their rock. He is their security. He is ours. He is with us. He is our provision. He is the bread of life. Now, before we apply this to ourselves, there is a warning. We see this in verses 14 and 15. Look at the people's response. So in verses 14 and 15, we see that the, the crowds respond to the sign and they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So initially, they have the right conclusion. They rightly say, this is the prophet. And this is all quite linked to what we went over last week in chapter 5. Remember how Jesus spoke of how Moses wrote of him, I think largely referring to that passage in Deuteronomy 18, where God talks about another prophet, another prophet raised up after Moses, which is referring to Jesus as the prophet. And here, the people, they actually have the right conclusion. They see the sign and they say, wow, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So they have the right conclusion. But the problem is they take their right conclusion in the wrong direction. That's what we see in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
It's literally this idea of taking him by force. They were going to seize him. They were going to actually, as it says, forcibly take him, but they were going to seize him as someone seizes either a criminal or someone who is forcibly going to, against their will, be taken from one place to another place. This is what Jesus knows they are going to do. And he is not going to be king in that way. So he withdraws. And it's as if the crowd here, in their response to seeing the prophet who can provide, the crowd assumes maybe that he can be their political king. I mean, this is part of the hopes of Israel. They're still under oppression. They're still technically in exile. After the exile, they've never really regained their homeland, being able to rule for themselves. They're under Greek occupation and now Roman occupation. And so they see this Messiah as their hopes of overthrowing the Romans so that the Jews can finally be free, particularly at Passover time. Passover time was often a time of really nationalistic zeal. It was this time where they remembered Moses freed us from Egypt and there is coming a day where the prophet will free us from whatever oppression we're under. It was uh, similar to, I mean, Australia Day has lost its sort of meaning now, but imagine 30, 40 years ago, the way that Australia Day would sort of rile people up for nationalistic zeal. Passover time really uh, riled people up for nationalistic zeal for Israel. And so they see the prophet and they think, great, he's going to overthrow the Romans. He will be our political, physical king here. It's the same sort of theme that will continue in chapter 6, where the people simply look for the physical solution, where they come to Jesus after this, and basically they come to Jesus and Jesus says, you people are simply coming to me because you saw that I could provide you with food. You didn't see the sign. You didn't see the true sign of what it was pointing to. And so he says, don't work for food that perishes. Likewise here, there is a danger in these people misappropriating the right knowledge of Jesus as the Messiah, taking it in the wrong direction. Just as there is a danger for us today, there is always a danger of misappropriating right knowledge of Jesus and taking it in the wrong direction, whether it is using Jesus as a cosmic genie to basically give you whatever you materially want, that is taking the right conclusion of Jesus as a provider and putting it in the wrong direction. Jesus is not a cosmic genie to simply give you whatever material possessions you want, or whether it is using Jesus's words to drive our political positions, like the themes of justice that are quite pervasive throughout our society. And many people use the words of Jesus to somehow advocate for things like racial reconciliation and these things like critical race theory or even advocating for the rights of people who are living in a way that is abominable by the Lord. We can take right conclusions and misappropriate them in the wrong way. And Jesus will not draw near to those who seek to use him for their advantage. Like we see in this passage, he will withdraw. God will resist the proud. God will resist anyone who seeks to use Jesus to their own advantage, or in the end, he will hand them over to their desires, which was never for Jesus, but it was for their selfish ways of living. In contrast to this, those who rightly see Jesus as the provision of God, those who rightly see Jesus as the lamb who was slain and as the bread of life, 
They do not seek to use Jesus to their own advantage. There's none of that. They simply submit in humility before their Savior in utter awe at his provision. That's the right response. Humility and awe before their Messiah. This is the right response when you see the miraculous provision of God in Jesus as the bread of life. You bow in humble adoration before him. You do not call him to work to your advantage. Rather, you serve him as the one who is worthy of your whole entire life. That is the right response. Now, George Mueller demonstrates this so very well. So I want to give two examples from the life of George Mueller to show this. If you don't know, George Mueller was a 19th century pastor, missionary, and though um, sometimes the word entrepreneur is not um, the best uh, word, really he was a bit of an entrepreneur in the way that he used his resources to start uh, hundreds of orphanages and Christian schools in the 19th century. He started, uh, as I said, hundreds of orphanages, many Christian schools, and he ended up caring for over 10,000 orphans in England through his life. And almost all of the funds for the orphanages were raised through donors, and not once did Mueller ask anyone for money in his whole life. And he would have raised the equivalent of tens or maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, and not once did he ask anyone for money. And he explains his reasons for this. And it was all to do with the sovereignty of God and seeing him as a provider. Mueller says, the reason why I have refrained altogether from asking money for anyone or asking for their help is so that the hand of God might be evidently seen in the matter. That thus my fellow believers might be encouraged more and more to trust in him and that also those who know not the Lord may have fresh proof that indeed it is not a vain thing to pray to God. So he's saying the whole reason why I do not ask anyone for money is so that believers would remember to trust that the Lord is a provider and then unbelievers would see that it's not a vain thing to pray to the Lord. He does provide. He does answer prayers. It's all for his glory. That's his point. He records many, many stories, just one story of which is a morning where he had over uh, 300 orphans at the table all ready for breakfast time and he had no food. So 300 orphans in his care, no food. It's about to be breakfast time. All of a sudden, a baker knocks on the door and says, uh, Mr. Mueller, I was so distraught last night, I, I just couldn't sleep. And I had this conviction that you would need bread today. So I sat up all night baking and here's the bread. And then after that, a milkman uh, knocked on the door. The milkman's cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage. He said, there's no way the milk's going to um, stay by the time I fix the cart. So here's milk. And it was enough for about 300 orphans. And this is just one of many stories of Mueller's conviction that the Lord would provide. The Lord would provide. And he constantly saw the Lord's generous provision despite naturally impossible circumstances. That seems naturally impossible to have 300 orphans there with no food, but yet believing that the Lord would somehow provide food. A little committed into the hands of Jesus becomes more than enough every time. 
Now, I use Mueller because there is another aspect of God's provision in his life, because the danger is that we somehow see this and in ignorance and naivety, go about our lives, assuming that Jesus will just provide us with food. There is, of course, still responsibility upon us to exercise our faith. But Mueller demonstrates a deeper and far more profound trust in God's provision through his life of loss. There is another means by which God provides for us, and that is his sustaining grace through impossibly painful circumstances. And Mueller lived a life of pain and suffering. He was first married, he had two wives. He was first married to Mary Groves for 39 years. She died. Um, A few years later, he married again to Susanna Sanger. They married for 23 years. She died uh, again. He outlived both of them. Mueller had four children to Mary Groves. Three of them died in infancy. Two were stillborn. One died before uh, the child reached one year old. The other adult child lived to be about 40, but Mueller saw her die as well. So he outlived all of his family, saw them all die. And in the face of grief and heartache from loss, Mueller demonstrated God's ability to provide sustaining grace in seemingly impossible circumstances. Just listen to this account of when his first wife, Mary, whom he loved deeply, and there are beautiful letters that he would write to her that we still have that show his great love for her. And Mueller watched her die on a Sunday afternoon, and then he wrote this of her death. Just listen to this. Mueller says, The last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this, and it's from Psalm 84, uh, verse 11, I believe. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Mueller records, I said to myself, No good thing will he withhold from those that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ and I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again. Sick as she is, God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it will not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all the springs, as I have so often said before, from taking God at his word. All of this springs from taking God at his word in believing what he says. So he said, the Lord can very well provide revival to her. He can raise her again in that moment. But if he doesn't, it wouldn't have been a good thing because he doesn't withhold anything good from his children. So the fact that she is dead is a good thing. She is with the Lord and he will sustain me. That is a good thing. This is what it looks like to believe in God's complete ability to provide in impossible circumstances. It is a posture of humility and reverence with deep trust that whatever comes our way is good. When we have this, when we see Christ as the ultimate provision, we do not then dictate how he is to provide for us. 
That's not trusting in God's provision if you are dictating how he must provide, as in you must provide me with this house or this job or whatever. That's not trusting in him. That's a cosmic genie, Jesus. Trusting in his provision is to believe that whether in gain or loss, hungry or well-fed, he will provide. He will provide. We do not restrict God to only providing for us according to our terms. We simply know that he will abundantly provide. And how he does that is his prerogative. How he chooses to provide is his prerogative. See, one of the greatest provisions God can give is the comfort and sustaining grace to walk through life's most difficult and heart-wrenching circumstances and still say like Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is a miraculous provision from the Lord to have someone who can walk through excruciating loss, like the sudden death of a loved one, a terminal illness and say, the Lord is good. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. That is, I believe, a naturally impossible result. It is naturally impossible for someone to have that response unless they are delusional. That is a spiritual, miraculous reality for someone to walk through life's most difficult circumstances and not curse the Lord, but bless him. That is a work of the spirit within someone's life. A miracle must happen for that to occur. And this is what glorifies the Lord. This is what glorifies the Lord. When his followers walk through life in these circumstances and they have such a profound love and adoration for him and a realization that he is a provider, that they do not dictate how he provides, rather they know that he is good and that is what glorifies the Lord. And this is at the root of why Jesus displays his ability to provide in impossible circumstances. Now, just as we finish, let's just draw three very brief comforting conclusions from what we see of Jesus in our passage. The first conclusion, God's provision is never bound by circumstances. God's provision is never bound by circumstances. There is no situation that you will ever be in that God is not able to provide. It's impossible. You can't ever be in a situation where God doesn't have complete ability at that moment to provide all that you need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. There's, there is no circumstance that will ever bound or restrict God's provision. He fed 15,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, and he ended up with more than he had at the beginning. There is no way that you can restrict God's provision. You could be in the most impossible of circumstances and he will provide. This leads us to our second comforting conclusion. God delights in leading us into impossible circumstances in order to see his provision. Remember, it was precisely the fact that it was totally impossible. It was naturally impossible to feed this amount of people with that amount of resources. And that was precisely what helped us to see God's provision. To see the provision, it wouldn't be the same thing if Jesus then at that moment went to get a hundred chefs of the land to cook up a big meal and then eventually provide. That, that's, that's abundant provision, but it's not a miraculous provision. It is the fact that they have absurdly minimal resources that they are led into impossible circumstances that we see the abundant provision. And likewise, God delights in ordaining circumstances 
for us toward what may seem impossible so that he may get the glory. Think of Gideon and his army, where God has to continue to say to this army of people, you have too many people. You will think that you have done something. You need to reduce all the way down to 300 men against thousands and thousands of people so that it will be abundantly clear that God has done this. Abundantly clear. God will lead us into situations where it must lead us to have no other conclusion but to say, the Lord has done this. Praise be to God. Thirdly and finally, serving the Lord will often be about doing much with little resources. It is not the material resources that are important. Serving the Lord will often be about doing much with little resources. In the other gospel accounts, it's interesting to note that when Jesus takes the loaves and the fish, he then gives it to the disciples and then the disciples distribute it. It's a picture of followers of Jesus being given what Jesus gives to them in order to then distribute to others. And what he gives may seem like a little. Think of the disciples. I mean, it seems like at that point, it was still the most minimal amount. And so the disciples are still probably, think of um, uh, Philip, who has this in incredulous response. Think of him taking the food and being like, well, okay, I guess I'll give it out, but it's still not going to be enough. After the first person, this is gone. But of course, a little in the hands of Jesus is more than enough. And serving the Lord will often require us using the little that the Lord gives us and trusting that to the Lord to abundantly provide as we serve him. And while things may seem impossible to us, just remember what we read in verse six here. While things seem impossible, what do we read here in the back end of verse six? Jesus himself knew what he would do. He asks Philip, but he knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows exactly what he's going to provide miraculously. To the disciples, it seems impossible. Jesus knows exactly what he is going to do. Likewise, in our impossible circumstances, God, of course, knows what he is going to do. He knows exactly what he is going to do. There is no accident. You are never in an accidental circumstance. Everything is God's sovereign provision and providence. Now, to give just a final application to us as a church and to the wider church in terms of our evangelistic task, I believe that today we have a very similar picture of what we're seeing here in John 6 in terms of the church and our evangelistic task. Think about it. We see this picture of masses of people, thousands of people, just thinking about Tuggeranong or even Lanyon itself, who has about 15 to 20,000 people. Masses of people who are starved to death of spiritual nourishment because they do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not know their left hand from their right. They are starved to death. And Christ calls his church, Christ calls us as measly and inadequately resourced as we may seem to distribute the message of the gospel to the crowds, to distribute that message out. And God has very clearly demonstrated throughout the history of the church that he is pleased to use what may seem foolish in the eyes of the world to bring glory to his name. He is pleased to lead his church into places where it seems absolutely impossible 
Think about the many times throughout church history where it seemed like the church was surely going to die. And God is pleased to move his church into that position so that he would be glorified as the message of the gospel continues to go out. Just think about the first century and hearing about God's strategic plan being one of the main ways. Well, I'm going to make sure a whole bunch of my followers die excruciating deaths and that's how I will spread the gospel. People will be martyred. People will suffer and the Christians will be persecuted and lit on fire by Nero and other events. And that's how the gospel will go out. God is pleased to use these seemingly impossible circumstances in order to cause his message to go out and for him to get the glory. And because the father has given us the ultimate provision of his son, who then gives us his empowering spirit, we know that as we go about this task, he will continue to provide every one of our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. As we as the church go about our task of faithfully witnessing, thinking about the naturally impossible circumstances of being in a cultural environment where there is a whole lot of apathy toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it often seems impossible at times, but we have seen in this that Jesus has complete ability to provide abundantly in, in impossible circumstances. He will continue his work through the church. Let me pray and then we will uh, reorient ourselves to take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you that you have shown in your son and by your spirit, your complete ability to provide abundantly in impossible circumstances. And so what a comfort to know that there is no circumstance we will ever be in where you are unable to provide for us. You will provide us with sustaining grace. You will provide us with a way out of temptation. You will provide us with everything that we need to continue walking faithfully before you. As a church, you will provide for us. You have already shown that by raising up workers for the harvest. You will continue to do so. We ask that you will continue to provide us with open doors in this city that we may declare the mystery of Christ and that you would open hearts so that they would pay attention to what is being said, that we might see people brought out of darkness into your marvelous light. Help us to remember, help us to trust completely in you as we see your abundant provision in impossible circumstances. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.